You're listening to Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. Larry Miller here. Thanks for joining us today. On the show today, we'll uh, take a look at a different way to grow food in your garden. And our guest is Christine Chung. She is a horticulturist and educator based in Vancouver. Her new book is The Layered Edible Garden, a beginner's guide to creating a productive food garden layer by layer. Are you thinking of adding fruit trees or shrubs to your garden? What questions do you have about using edible plants in the landscape? Love to hear from you. You can give us a call at 800-642-1234, 1-800-642-1234, or send an email to ideas at wpr.org, ideas at wpr.org. Christine Chung, welcome. Great to have you with us today. Thank you for having me, Larry. How did you get interested in growing food, and and then how did that love of growing food lead you to layered gardening? So I would say when I was young, I was bitten by the, you know, let's grow tomatoes and potatoes bug um, in our home garden. So my dad, I think he had some potatoes, and it, it all kind of started from there. And it wasn't until I had my son that I was like, I really want to have, you know, that experience for him growing up. And also that was the time that I was going back to school for horticulture school. And that's when I started learning more horticulturally based ways to tend to plants. And I'm like, well, let's see how we can grow food plants better. Um, I eventually took on the role of the program coordinator of the program that I was taking And I was tasked with the job of teaching small-scale urban food growing, as well as looking into ways to get people involved in growing food that is also ornamental, um, because the schooling is mostly landscape horticulture, but with a growing trend in growing food, how can we marry all of these topics together? So that's really how I professionally started, you know, looking into growing in this manner. So uh, your book is The Layered Edible Garden, and and I think some of our listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with the um, food forest style, where you grow many different fruits and nuts and herbs and even vegetables. How is it different from the layered edible garden? Yeah, that's a really great question. And um, I know with permaculture and food forest, those terms are becoming more and more familiar as people want to explore different flavors, explore different species to incorporate into their gardens. Um, And the idea here with the layered edible garden is that it relies less on the more prescriptive ways on how to build, let's say, a food forest or permaculture guild. Um, If anyone's leafed through a food forest book or a permaculture book, a lot of the times they have collections of plants that um, grow well together for um, multiple reasons. And for me, even for an experienced food grower, I found that a little bit daunting if I wasn't, let's say, familiar with the specific plants that were recommended, or maybe locally I wasn't able to source those plants. And then I started feeling, well, maybe I won't get that much success if I don't follow what is um, recommended. So the layered edible garden is an idea where it's 
let's follow a loose framework, but use plants that are available to you and let's meet you where you're at, whether you are a new grower, um, just brand new to food gardening or just gardening in general, or if you are an experienced food grower and you want to experiment with incorporating more species into your growing area. Yeah. And you've, you've identified eight layers and, and maybe just uh, tell us what they are and, and the part they play in the garden. Yeah, of course. So with the eight layers, I like to talk about the tallest ones first or the perhaps maybe the longest lived or the longer living ones. So let's start with the canopy trees. So for many folks, if they go into their garden on their property, these canopy trees are maybe the ones that you inherited. It could be the large maple. And for me, I look outside, it's a large cedar. And these are maybe decades old. Mm -hmm. And I have to work with the conditions that they provide my space. And the important thing here with canopy canopy trees is that they sort of dictate the flavor of the garden because they, you know, allow, you know, they dictate the amount of sunlight that gets into the space. And I would never really encourage anyone to cut down or remove these uh, beautiful trees because they've been there for a while, unless they pose a danger or there's some actual reason for removing them. So canopy trees, you know, those are the biggest ones. Underneath it are the subcanopy trees. So it's exactly what it sounds like. These are a little bit lower. Um, the range can still vary uh, from height to width, but this is usually the layer if a gardener is wanting to incorporate a fruit tree. This is a layer where it gets really fun. Could be um, fruit trees, could be trees that provide nuts, provide edible leaves. So there's a lot of flexibility there, and this is where you can source locally, you know, what kind of trees will do well in my climate to sort of complement the canopy trees. You know what? I'm going to, John and Baldwin has a question about, essentially, <laughs> about a sub-canopy tree. So let's just jump in and let him do that, and then we'll go back to your eight layers. John, hi. Mm-hmm. Hi. Hi there. How are you today? Good. Appreciate the call. What's on your mind? I have fruit trees in my backyard, and I know that it's late in February, but historically I would prune my fruit trees in February. Um, Right now I'm looking at tomorrow's temperature being up at 50, and I'm kind of nervous about doing any pruning at this time, but have I missed my chance for this year? I'm I'm not sure what to do. Yeah. So in terms of pruning the fruit trees, I think it really depends on Um, It could be down to the variety, the type of fruit tree, and the conditions that you have, whether you're going to be also seeing forecasted wet weather or if it's going to be dry, if there are going to be um, more temperature dips and ups and downs. But I would say look to your local extension to see what they recommend. A lot of the times it's such a great resource that people um, may not turn to um, and they'll know how to give you the information that is specific to um, not just your region but to the plants there are a lot of experts locally to where you are Um, so I'd say do that but um, a lot of the times even though it feels like oh it's end of February we're heading into March 
there still is a good window for pruning depending on the plants because dormancy depends on the temperature. So um, I'd say check your local extension to see um, what they recommend um, because with fruit trees, there's such a great variety. It's really hard to pinpoint um, a specific answer for you. Uh, good luck, John. I think uh, even though it's going to be 50 degrees or whatever, uh, coming up, I'm pretty sure there's some cold, uh, a cold week ahead, and uh, that would probably make you feel better about it as well. Thanks for calling. Well, there's a question about subcanopy trees, but you had canopy trees you mentioned in your layer, then you mentioned the subcanopy trees, and now we're on to shrubs, I believe, is the next in line, isn't it? Yes, it is, and shrubs. Oh my gosh, Larry, I can talk about shrubs for <laughs> quite some time because there's such a great variety. Now, I think a lot of people, what do they think of when they think of fruiting shrubs? Blueberries come to mind. They're really popular. And there's some hotter regions that can't grow blueberries as well. But with nurseries um, being in tune with that, there are some lower uh, chill hours or fewer chill hours um, so you can get blueberries. But if you want to look beyond blueberries, there are some really neat ones. And if I could, would you like me to throw one of my favorite yeah, uh, go examples ahead. out there? Yeah, so I talk a lot about goji berries. Um, and for quite a number of years, goji berries or wolf berries have been a, a superfood. If you go into any health food store or granola mix, you know, if you look at the package, goji berries are in there and they are such a fantastic easy maintenance shrub to have in the garden they can tolerate cold they've gone through um you know heat and they're just really really interesting and they grow pretty fast so i'm sometimes quite impatient with waiting for fruit to produce so goji is very rewarding because it will start producing within the first i'd say two three years and in quite abundance so we've got uh, our zones here, southern Wisconsin, five, uh, and then as you go north, four and three are the zones that we have, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, would gojis uh, survive in all three of those? Um, well, it could depend on the variety. From what I've come across, um, a lot of literature says down to zones three, which is pretty darn cold. Yes. And I'm thinking, yeah, I'm thinking you do want to protect the plants, especially around the base. Because once the roots are kind of toast, it's really hard to revive the plant. But something like goji, where um, I sometimes like to give it a very hard prune, not quite to the base, but if I give it a prune down to, let's say, oh gosh, like depending on the size of the plant, I can take more than half of it off. It fruits on new wood. So if let's say uh, cold temperatures destroy the top part and it's not looking too happy, it will usually come back if you give it a hard prune and the plant just kind of does its thing. So this is one of the more cold, hardier fruiting shrubs that I like to talk about. Um, and it just grows well in soil that isn't too overly rich. And actually, it prefers leaner soil. So, you know, if you have an area that's a bit less garden beddy, you haven't amended it, this could be a great place to plop a plant and see how it, go see how it grows. So those goji berries, and I, 
I probably had them <laughs> and didn't know that I was eating them, uh, you know, as as part of the things you mentioned earlier. But what if you've got a, a handful of goji berries and you shove them in your mouth? Uh, what are they? Is there another fruit that sort of goji berries taste like or are they totally different? Well, what's interesting with goji berry, like I can give another example, but with goji berries, um, I find when people say that they've tasted it dry, um, the first thing people describe it as is bitter. And I'm like, I can kind of understand the bitterness because I guess it depends on how it's processed and dried before it's put in the package. But if you um, if you get a chance to try a fresh goji berry, it's kind of like um, like a really squishy, small sweet or, or rather not spicy pepper. Hmm. Um, yeah, because they're in the same family. So they like sort of similar conditions. They like a bit of sun, um, but they look like tiny, tiny chili peppers, which are fleshy throughout, very juicy. And you likely won't see them in the grocery store because they don't travel well. When you pluck them off, they don't have that little, you know, when eggplants are, um, Eggplants and tomatoes are harvested. They sometimes have that little hat yeah. <laughs> intact on top. Yeah, so goji berry, um, they fully detach, and they are hard to transport. So they're squishy and sweet, and they're quite a nice seasonal delicacy um, for people who grow them at home. Christine Chung, our guest today, horticulturist and educator based in Vancouver, Canada, and her book is titled The Layered Edible Garden, A Beginner's Guide to Creating and Producing a productive food garden layer by layer. You can join in too. Number to call 800-642-1234. Email us to ideas at WPR.org. Tyler Ditters, our engineer today. Jill Nadeau, our producer. I'm Larry Mueller for Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. Talking today on Garden Talk with Christine Chung. She is the author of The Layered Edible Garden, a beginner's guide to creating a productive food garden, layer by layer. And we've been talking layers. With By the way, you can join in, email us to ideas at wpr.org or phone in 800-642-1234. She has identified eight layers in the layered edible garden, and we've talked about the large canopy trees, the smaller subcanopy trees, and then we took a look at shrubs. And next in line... Herbaceous perennials? Yes. Yes. So we're moving from the highest to the lowest. And this is kind of the middle area where, you know, if you go into any nursery, um, you know, most of the plants fill this layer. So it's really fun to do the research and shop for this layer. And what would we include in this layer? So if you want to visualize a garden, let's say an ornamental garden in most temperate regions, so these are the plants that typically die back and disappear for the winter. So for the other three layers, the canopy trees, subcanopy trees, and shrubs, these are what's, uh, what are called woody plants. So they persist through the seasons, whether they have leaves showing year-round or maybe they're just bare branches. This layer, it could be your hostas. It could be clumps of garlic chives or regular chives. If you grow artichokes, uh, depending on where you live and how cold it gets, these are the plants that could die down 
but they're still living underneath the ground. So this is a really exciting layer because there's so much variety and many of these plants can offer so much ornamental value too. So if you are really big on the aesthetics of the garden, this is where a lot of the playing happens. And then you have climbers. Yes, climbers. So uh, oftentimes we focus so much on, let's say the herbaceous perennial layer we kind of forget that there are plants that can kind of bridge the height between the lower layers and the higher layers. Maybe you have, you know, plants that want to climb up, up, up. Well, maybe you give it a trellis, maybe a fence with a bit of support and let them climb up. And then visually stunning and they can flower, they can fruit. It's a great use of vertical space by incorporating climbers into the garden. And uh, we can't forget annuals. No, no. Annuals are great. And I think there's one misconception around, let's say, food forests and maybe some of the permaculture um, plants. It's not just perennial plants. And I know my book focuses mostly on perennial plants, uh, just to highlight some really neat options. But annuals serve such a great role in food gardens. I mean, I still grow my tomatoes, my lettuces, and they're just really clever ways to tuck them here and there without having everything look just like rows and rows of vegetables. Yeah. I, I, it would be hard uh, to find a garden in Wisconsin that doesn't have a tomato. Maybe I'm wrong, <laughs> a plant, but uh, definitely uh, there would be a tomato plant or two in my uh, layered garden for sure. Uh, so annuals, then ground covers. Yes, yes. Also an area that maybe people like to cover with mulch or with grass or ground cover, but this is also a really great space to grow plants that serve multiple purposes. Maybe you want some erosion control. Maybe you just want something that looks a a little bit softer, or maybe you want a tapestry kind of, um, not quite a lawn, but if you have an open area, if you let things kind of blend together, grow together, knit together, it can be really, really beautiful. Um, And then depending on the plants that you grow, they could be edible, they may even fruit for you. And finally, uh, the eighth is root crops. Yes, root crops. So these are the things that obviously, you know, they're going to be underneath the soil. You may not see them as much. So something like potatoes, which are grown, you know, during the main season, you kind of, you know, if you've grown potatoes, you know what the top looks like. They're green and lush and bushy and they're wonderful, but there's still such a great huge world of underground crops that, um, you know, one could explore for the garden. Yeah. Richard in Two Rivers has a question. Richard, hello. Yeah, hey, thanks for having me on. Um, I have a question regarding um, my garden and my backyard. I was not around last year in my house, so it ended up uh, becoming pretty much overcome with thickets. I just wonder, is there anything I can spray or do which would be easier and and not worry about the health issues with the garden? So we've got Richard wants to get rid of the weeds in his neglected garden. Right. And, you know, it really depends on what you are looking to do with a garden. I'm personally not a fan of spraying unless I know exactly uh, what the outcome is supposed to be. Now, if we're talking about wanting to grow food plants in this space, um, 
I would say no matter how neglected it looks, it's best to approach it manually. So um, digging the roots out of like, so the weedy plants, if you are able to go and dig, just, it may feel overwhelming, but you can break down your project into smaller, more manageable sections, clear it out section by section. That way, you know that you're not applying anything that doesn't need to be in the ground, especially if plants are going to be uptaking it from the soil and especially for food plants. You don't want to be putting anything um, potentially questionable into your body. Um, So I always recommend breaking it down into small sections and working with a digging fork, a shovel, maybe have a gardening party, and then just tackle that bit by bit. It can feel overwhelming, but um, try not to put so much pressure on yourself. And uh, hopefully, eventually, you can clear out all of the overgrown weeds Um, Just make sure to take your time and remove all of the roots because depending on the weed, um, they can just keep propagating and growing underneath if you don't um, remove everything. Richard, thank you for calling. Marilyn emailed to remind that blueberries need acidic soils. Wonders if goji berries need that as well. she also wanted to know about lingonberries. Could they be grown in Wisconsin? And yes, they can. But what about goji berries and the type of soil they need? Yeah, so um, that's a great point. And I've heard that they are very uh, flexible with a type of soil. So whether it's well-draining, they, they do like well-draining, but even a little bit more moisture. And with the pH or the acidity, they are not overly fussy. So I'd say if you have just normal garden conditions, like if your tomatoes grow well, um, if all of your other perennial plants seem to be doing well, they will likely thrive as long as it's not an overly wet, uh, swampy kind of um, garden bed. Marilyn, thank you for uh, that question. You can join in to number 800-642-1234. Email to ideas at WPR.org. I'm thinking about now we've got our layers here. The advantages, I'm thinking first about beneficial bugs. It sounds like it might be a good way to bring beneficial bugs to your uh, garden. Yes, I would say so because... You know, a lot of the times when we see um, insect pests, let's say aphids, or, you know, there could be, you know, caterpillars on our kales, or just depending on what you grow, you're, you're going to see your flavor of um, insect pests, I'm sure. And the great thing with, um, you know, growing in this manner is that you start thinking about, well, how do these shrubs, whether they produce food for me or not right now, how do they play a bigger role in the garden ecosystem? So by incorporating things like shrubs that maybe they flower and look nice and, um, you know, produce flowers for pollinators or birds, you know, if you also have that space for birds to nest and, you know, have their young, they're going to be like, hey, this is home. And so what do they feed their younger birds and what do they feed themselves? Well, they want to look for insects. So if our idea is like, okay, let's not rely on necessarily spraying or having to go out and like pick every single bug off of our kale because that's quite tedious and kind of gross. 
we let the creatures who we're welcoming into our space do that job for us. So, like, for me, I like to rely on, you know, whatever creature wants to tackle the pests for me. So that's one of the ways where we can kind of think about insect pests. Yeah. Not so much, not so much us getting directly involved, but how can we support the creatures who are going to naturally play a part? And that way I don't have to rely on products and I don't have to rely on me spending that extra time outside to manage the pest situation. Yeah. Tom in Manaqua has a question. Let's go there. Hi, Tom. Hi. Um, uh, I'm just wondering about growing uh, bucket gardening or uh, container gardening. What would be the type of plants that perhaps you could grow in there and still be able to control each of the different soils uh, individually? Yeah. And you do talk about containers in a layered garden. I do, I do. And this, I, I love this topic, and I'm so glad Tom asked this. So um, with containers, whether you want to grow in this style or not, um, the larger the container, usually you'll see better outcomes um, because you have more control over the moisture, especially as we enter hotter periods. You know, you don't want to be watering a small container multiple times throughout the day. And let's say we want to um, grow a mini layered garden in a container. And Tom had a great question. How do we make sure that the conditions are compatible for these plants? And that is a, that's a, that comes with a bit of tinkering and possibly a bit of trial and error, um, depending on your, uh, your, your comfort level with mixing and matching plants. But really, it's down to good gardening practices. If a plant likes very moist soils, consistently. So I'm thinking a lot of these um, fast-growing leafy crops, if you want to grow them um, in your mixture of, you know, layered plants, they will need moisture. And if you really, really want to grow those plants, then that's kind of telling you that this is the condition that the rest of the container will likely need to be. So what kind of um, longer-lived plants or what other plants should I incorporate? So um, really compatibility. It's really hard to try to force different uh, moisture levels and growing conditions within one container, especially if you're working with something, let's say, smaller than a half whiskey barrel. So I would say the larger the container, the more flexibility you have. Um, and also think about compatibility first before you start a following, following, sorry, follow, <laughs> falling in love, <laughs> sorry, falling in love with um, a combination that you have in mind because the plants need to, need to be healthy before they can thrive and produce food for you to eat. Yeah. And I, I, one of the things I've enjoyed about your book is that it really lays it out the, the whole process and, Certainly, uh, containers are are part of the process, but uh, your book is also filled with just absolutely wonderful colored photos of probably your garden and others maybe as well. Uh, but talk about the about your book. How did you decide uh, you were ready to write it, and what are readers going to find in it? Yeah, so uh, quite a bit of thought went into you know how this was going to be laid out because just even based on my personal experience as a, you know, a reader of garden books, I wanted something that was, you know, visual, um, 
because it helps, you know, the reader visualize, oh, actually, I think I have that. And I didn't know it could grow this tall or I didn't know it could spread this wide and serve as a ground cover. So that was one of the considerations, like, you know, have a lot of visuals in there to, um, you know, make people feel like, oh, actually, this is kind of familiar or maybe I've seen this in my um, in my neighborhood. I'm going to go walk over and take a look at how that's assembled. So, um, yeah, the visuals were a big thing. And um, I think just having the chapters being chunked out into the layers, I was thinking, well, if people want to give this a go and they want to refer to, let's say, some of these plants that I have as examples, as like their sort of shopping list or a, a place where they can start researching, well, it's kind of all laid out like that because um, like many people, I go to the nursery and I feel overwhelmed with so many choices of beautiful things. And sometimes depending on the size of the plant there, I may, I may not know whether it's going to turn into a subcanopy tree size, or maybe it's just going to be a smaller herbaceous perennial, or maybe that plant has the potential to, you know, cover a lot of ground as a ground cover. So it's kind of like almost a framework for a, a shopping list. Because if you know you're missing one layer, let's say I really want to fill out the shrub layer, you can go to that section of the book, get some inspiration, and we're like, oh, actually, I can grow black chokeberry, and it's native to North America, and I want to grow an edible food garden with a shrub that's native to North America. That could be something I could look into. So that's the idea of the, you know, categorizing into the layers in a very uh, color-coded and clear way. Yeah, I'd say, and the writing is very uh, clear, well, is well written, and does give a lot of information about, uh, you know, within the layers, you have many, many types of plants, uh, and then you have a lot of individual information about each of these plants that you talk about in your book. Yeah, and then, I mean, the plants are great, and I find... Um, sometimes the maintenance topics or how to care for the growing garden. Um, You know, I really wanted to incorporate other topics that sometimes maybe are tucked away in, you know, books that are overly technical, even for myself. So having taught, um, you know, in a botanical garden, I wanted to bring some of those more, sometimes more science based topics, and bring them into the book using language that is easier to digest. Because, you know, a lot of the times we're picking up gardening books and we we're looking at the photos, we are looking for, you know, some guidance. And, you know, I, I know for myself, when I hit, a, let's say, a chapter that's just full of technical jargon, I am like, oh, I'm not ready to try to process this right now. So another one of the goals with this book is to make it easy to read. And hopefully that comes across, um, you know, with the more broken down, like visual chunks of information, like, you know, pruning woody, woody plants season by season. Like there's some pros and cons. And although a lot of the tips are based on, you know, how plants respond throughout the seasons to the different sunlight, Um, I wanted to just really highlight, you know, this is why you should be doing this, and this is the simple reason why. 
Yeah. And, you know, whether someone wants to research more about that, like they can go from that point. But for a new gardener, it's, I think it's enough to be like, oh, okay, there's some sound reason. It's not just some ambiguous, vague, like, oh, you should do this now. And yeah, just yeah. listen to it because I said, <laughs> because I said so. <laughs> well, I, I think the first step uh, is an important one in in creating a layered garden. Talk about the first steps. So the first steps, now I like to lean on um, just basic garden design principles. And so let's say I am walking in as um, a design consultant and I ask the client, like, what are you looking for? You know, what I'm trying to extract from this conversation is what are the basic needs what are you looking for from your garden? Are you wanting to grow just food? Are you looking to have a beautiful space? Are you looking to maintain a section for, let's say, your kids and your dogs to play in? And should that be, like, non-fussy? So it's really starting from that and asking the why. Because it's very easy to be, um, you know, drawn in. Um, well, especially at like a retail nursery store, like, oh, this is great. I'm going to plant this here, there, and everywhere. But it really doesn't address the why. Like, why are you purchasing that? Are you wanting to spend the time to grow this plant that may be a little bit needy? Um, do you have the right space for it? If not, is it going to create more work for you and take up more of your time? So um, in a nutshell, it's, starting with the why. What are you looking for in the garden? And that kind of helps you break down step by step what the next steps are going to look like. And I like the fact uh, as well that maybe beyond that or maybe next steps uh, is sort of looking at your area, your lawn uh, area, let's say, or the back backyard or whatever it might be, kind of measuring it out a little bit and then just making a drawings of where things would likely do best. Yes, exactly. And uh, that, that <laughs> you beat me to it. That was my, my next thing. It's like, once you kind of figure out like how you want to experience this space. So if this is your home garden, this is an extension of your home or maybe you spend a lot of time in the garden. Maybe this is where you spend almost all of your time um, besides like, you know, sleeping and cooking indoors. So make sure you have an idea of what this space is supposed to do. How is this going to serve you to make you want to enjoy it and spend time pending to it? So the next step is, yes, uh, you need to know the conditions of your space because you, before you go and buy your plants, you know, I may fall in love with this, sun-loving plant, but it turns out after observing my garden over, you know, the next few weeks that actually because my garden is, let's say, uh, blocked off by, you know, two fences and maybe there's a tree there, maybe that kind of automatically um, helps me narrow down what will thrive in my garden. So take the time to observe the space, see what grows well and see what doesn't do as well in certain spots. And that will really 
um, help you in mapping out your space. So yes, you want to measure the available um, areas because things like fruit trees and shrubs, they can and likely will grow wider and taller over time. So map it out for the size, but also consider the light, how it is now, and also how it will be in, let's say, three years' time, five years' time, as those plants that you, let's say, newly introduced into the garden start to fill out. Because as they get bigger and taller, they're going to start casting shade as well. And that may sound like it's going to maybe remove some sunlight uh, conditions, but it also opens up opportunities to grow plants that appreciate the cooler, shadier spots. So it's always shifting, which is very fun. And the, the whole thing with, you know, gardening is just learning, experimenting, and watching how things naturally, you know, grow through time. You know, I was thinking too about sight lines. You know, many times I think that gets overlooked when designing mm. a garden. And that's such a great point. Again, back to the basics of garden design, um, you know, whether you are wanting to have a beautiful plant that flowers sort of within sight when you are inside in your living room, you know, let's say you like the, the cherry blossoms will, you know, have this profusion of color and you get to enjoy it from inside when it's still a little bit too chilly for you to read your book outside. So having that, that type of sight line when you're, from the inside looking out is really important. Um, and that's great to map when you are trying to design and place plants in areas that make sense. Um, and also, let's say you're sitting in your favorite chair in your living room and you have this beautiful window. Maybe you want to grow something a little bit taller that can peek up so that you can see that, as opposed to just having ground cover there. Yeah. And the other thing I was thinking, you know, without distinct rows... Uh, and I'm looking at the photos that you have, and if you just look at the photos without reading what you've got <laughs> in here, you might say, how the heck am I going to care for these plants? Uh, you know, the, is, is it difficult to get to the plants to care for them without distinct rows? It can be. It can be, depending on the size of the bed. So I would say um, if it's a really, really large area, you do want to think about how you access to A, care for the plants, and B, harvest. Because if everything is bunched together, even if they're thriving, you're still going to cause some disturbance when you go in to harvest and maybe trim back some overgrown leaves that are maybe drooping down from your grapevine. Um, so you do have to consider space for you to access and also for proper airflow so that you don't encounter pests and disease issues from overcrowding. Um, and sometimes it just boils down to trial and error. You grow, um, you start growing things one season, and if you notice that they start growing really fast, then maybe it's time to, <laughs> you know, spin it out a bit and find a new home. So um, you are also growing as the garden grows. So it's a lot of observation, I would say. And um, it does take time to you get to know when you need to make that call to move something or, you know, trim it down and let it come back up with fresh new leaves. 
So, um, yeah, it's very tempting when you have a big open plot to just cram everything in there. Um, but if you are working with something like that, maybe you can even lay down like a cedar fence board to help you walk through it so that you can tend to the younger plants or go in and harvest. Christine Chung, our guest today's uh, horticulturist and educator. Her book is titled The Layered Edible Garden, A Beginner's Guide to Creating a Productive Food Garden Layer by Layer. I'm Larry Mueller for Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. listening to Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. Larry Mueller here with my guest today, Christine Chung, author of The Layered Edible Garden. Great to have her with us. Just a quick reminder, our winter member drive is just around the corner, and this year it's all happening in one action-packed day. We're on a mission to keep the interruptions to a minimum while uh, still reaching our fundraising target. Can't do it alone. Your gift now makes a big difference. You'll help make our winter member drive a success and ensure you and your neighbors have access to Garden Talk and all the other inspiring stories, news, and music. So you can give now at WPR.org slash donate. WPR.org slash donate. We'll take a, a call right now. Dennis in Two Rivers, thanks for joining in. Hi, uh, I've got a lesson to pass along as far as visualization and planning. Uh, my dad had this teenage son. Who, well, after my after my dad put in some rows of plants, he had had this teenage son pulling weeds. And then months later, my dad said, "Well, I wonder what happened to my Spanish peanuts." And his teenage son wondered, uh, "Well, what do those plants look like?" <laughs> <laughs> so if you're going to plant something out, be sure so somebody who pulls weeds knows the difference between the weeds and the plants you want and where those plants are. <laughs> oh, man. Christina, comment. That is such a great point, especially, um, you know, if you're exploring different varieties that may not be familiar to, let's say, someone who is just used to pulling, you know, anything that's growing out of the ground that doesn't look like a shrub, a flower, or grass. Um, so, yeah, that's such a great point, and that's so unfortunate. So unfortunate. I guess uh, it just comes down to, like, labeling, just stick a stake in the ground. Um, but, yeah, yeah. Oh, ouch. <laughs> Thanks for that call. Appreciate it. Oh, man. Well, you've designed the bed. You need to prepare the site. Best way to create um, the the site. We've got in-ground beds. We've got raised beds, maybe. Um, and then we may have containers. Yes. Yes. And containers offer a lot of flexibility. So not not everyone has a big plot of land to play with. It's great if you do, but many people... Um, in urban settings. And for myself, I live in a city that is full of uh, apartments and many people who want to garden either have to win a literal lottery to get a plot in a community garden, or they grow up on their balcony or their patio. And this style works as well. Um, You just have to know what kind of uh, plant selections 
you are able to keep happy within a containerized situation. And also back to compatibility, you can mix and match all you want um, based on aesthetics. But when it comes down to food, the plants need to be extra happy and receive the amount of the proper amount of light and uh, water that they need to produce the food. Um, so it's completely doable. And again, the container size is really important. The larger you can go, the better the outcome. Um, but if you are in an apartment, I do have to caution you, wet soil is very, very heavy. So if you um, have a strata or any sort of property management, always check to see what the load limit for your balcony is because you don't want to be causing any sort of weight issues as well. Do you, uh, how much... Um work do you do in creating your in-ground beds? I mean, in terms of the preparation. Yeah, so it depends on what the site is like. So for me, I've been doing this for a few years now. I find year after year, it's less work for me, like input, like my actual time and energy trying to um, prep the bed because maybe there's already a ground cover layer there, or maybe I sow uh, cover crops that protect the soil over the winter months. Um, and then all I have to do is either chop down the tops or add a layer of compost. And then once it's warm, I go ahead and plant my annuals. But the perennials, they're already there. They are waking up. Once we get these warmer temperatures, my cardoons, my, my herbs, they're going to pop up. So once you start down this path, you're going to realize, oh, my gosh, all of that work that I did beforehand is paying off. I'm not, like, looking at a blank garden, so it's not from scratch year after year. So um, it's still a bit of maintenance every week to go out and, you know, clean things up. You know, if there are annual weed seeds that, you know, have germinated, I want to remove those as quickly as I can. Um, and that's just that comes with all sorts of gardening. But you know, for perennial food focus, less and less every year, Larry. It's uh, it's incredible um, to be able to see this within maybe like three or four years of really just focusing on this method of growing. Yeah, it uh, it, it sounds and looks uh, amazing. As from uh, were most of the photos uh, taken from your garden or just other gardens? Um, so it's a good mixture. At the beginning of the book. Um, I'm really happy that we got to place this at um, the front. So I think it's chapter one. It's sort of like a like a aerial view of one of my favorite areas of the front garden. I call it the apple or creeping time bed. So that was uh, from my garden. And everything just kind of nips together. It's like a ton of flowers. The bees are loving it. So uh, pictures like that are from my garden. A lot of the close-up photos of the lesser um, common plants like the goji and I also have like a gomi berry in there um, you don't really come across those as much so if there's some uh, stranger oddball plants uh, it's likely from my garden because it's a <laughs> big area of interest for me well and this whole business <laughs> and you've talked about it a bit but um, having um, consideration for the plants that are going to thrive together because i mean you look at this and this is a mixture of you look at your photos and it is a mixture of plants and, and figuring out how they thrive together is got to be very important 
It does. And like for that example, with a lot of creeping times, actually a lot of these plants are Mediterranean. Um, so they want that rocky, dry, full sun. And surprise, surprise, these plants, like they like those conditions, they share those conditions. And, you know, I think that's why a bit of that research beforehand, before you invest in the plants to, you know, try to get them to grow together, really pays off. Um, so it's just back to that good gardening, like are the plants compatible? Like what are the soil conditions that I need to provide these plants so that they can just kind of do their own thing um, over the years? <laughs> you do mention, and you've mentioned this uh, over the last hour, impulse purchases once in a while. <laughs> We're all susceptible to that, by the way. Uh, what What do you do? <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, whether it's uh, an ornamental plant, I just see, like, a flower shape, and it's like, oh, my goodness, like, what is this? I need this. <laughs> um, sometimes, if you can, let's say, containerize it and move it around, um, that could be a start, depending on the size of the plant. So uh, get a large container, let it live, like, one season happily, and, you know, it's like, well, actually, it's either you know doesn't like this spot or really loves this spot you know that can help you decide whether or not you know uh, you know spot a is going to be its permanent home or spot b um and it gives you that flexibility and that's why i love containers as well um and also with impulse purchases well you know sometimes we don't need you know a certain aesthetic to have us love it you know sometimes um you know with traditional garden uh like landscape design there are color themes that you know you should stick with all these hot colors and cool colors and i absolutely understand that when you're trying to build you know based on a palette but with a lot of these food plants i mean they're going to be flowering different flowers at different times of the year and surprise like you know when arugula flowers it's going to be white does that fit your palette well actually that's a bad example because that's a great color to pop in everywhere but you know it's kind of like embracing like how things are just kind of grow naturally we can't really curate every aspect of our gardens and I think that's kind of the fun of it just mixing and matching experimenting and then just tweaking along the way so if that impulse buy really doesn't like my garden doesn't love the conditions and maybe I don't love it after a season and I have maybe the option to uh, sell it to a neighbor sell it to a friend or maybe just do a plant swap so again it's all about you know, finding these opportunities and really reframing these things. Like it's not, Oh, I'm stuck with this plant. It's like, Oh, I have this you know, opportunity to go to a plant swap with this plant that I actually impulse by and didn't love. Oh man. Oh man. Uh, Christine is, it's so much fun talking with you uh, today. Your book, uh, it's titled the, a Layered Edible Garden, A Beginner's Guide to Creating a Productive Food Garden, Layer by Layer. And the author, Christine Chung, horticulturist and educator. And she's written a fascinating and very colorful book. Great to have her with us for Garden Talk uh, on the Ideas Network of Wisconsin Public Radio.
Thanks so much for joining us for Garden Talk on the Ideas Network. And we're going to switch our attention a bit to a landscaping with native plants and a group called the Wild Ones. Appreciation with native plants has been around a long time in Wisconsin. And the Wild Ones was one of the first groups to recognize the benefits of this kind of gardening. And with us today is uh, Eric Fusilay. He is a member of the Wild Ones Board of Directors, a member of the Ozark uh, chapter coming to us from Little Rock, Arkansas. And as we talk with Eric, I hope you'll join in. Are you a member of the Wild Ones? Have you participated in some of the Wild Ones workshops? Tell us about your experiences. You can call in at 800 642 1234, 1 800 642 1234. Or send an email to ideas at WPR.org, ideas at WPR.org. Eric Fusilet, welcome. Uh, Thank you for taking time to be with us today. Yeah, thank you. It's great to be here. The Wild Ones was formed uh, in Wisconsin. Uh, How did it get started? Yeah, so you're right. It did start right there in Wisconsin. Uh, It started off with a group of people who attended a a workshop in the late 70s, uh, I think I believe it was hosted by Audubon uh, Society, and it was about um, landscaping with native plants and the importance of native plants for uh, supporting local ecosystems. And so, uh, you know, that there was a previous wave of interest in native plants back in the 70s. Uh, it wasn't the first time that this has been uh, gaining the popularity, and now we're, I believe, in a, you know a, a, the most recent wave. Uh, of interest and so these these people just uh, over time just formed a little social group or club and then finally in uh, the early 90s i believe 1990 decided to uh, incorporate as a 501c3 nonprofit uh, and created uh, officially created um, wild ones yeah i love the name too by the way (laughs) (laughs) it's it's a great name uh, what's the uh, talk about the mission of the Wild Ones? Yeah, so you know our mission uh, is really to promote native landscaping. Uh, that we do that through education, advocacy, and collaborative action. Uh, you know, we also have in the past our, our you know we've recently gone through a little bit of rebranding. Uh, so our mission statement was recently updated, but it's still pretty much we have the same mission we've always had, which is just trying to get more native plants out there in the, the landscaping and garden gardening environment. So um, as we know, you know, there's a lot of over, you know, the last hundred years or so or more, really, I mean, people have used plants from all around the world, um, you know, and which is, you know, okay. Uh, but, you know, whenever we're using native species and we're able to see a lot more benefits, like, you know, it tracks everything from butterflies or birds to our yards and, uh, for those who enjoy uh, bird watching in their backyard, native plants are a great way uh, to to grow and attract uh, these bird species that you can watch from your window and uh, not have to worry about refilling bird feeders or cleaning out your hummingbird feeders ever so often because uh, there are plenty of species that that will uh, that these birds are naturally attracted to. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, it, as we said, it, or as you said, it did start in Wisconsin, but of course. Uh, crept across the nation. I don't know if the creeping is right. It kind of spread across the nation relatively quickly. Uh, 
how many chapters and members uh, do you have now? Do you know? Yeah, so we have over 10,000 members. Uh, that's, you know, in 100 chapters in seedling. We call our uh, new and upcoming chapters that are just forming. We call them our seedling chapters. Uh, we, we have over 100 of those across 34 states. Uh, you're right, we have seen a tremendous amount of growth, especially here in the last several years. Uh, even there in Wisconsin, we have uh, 13 chapters uh, and over 1,500 members there in, in the state of Wisconsin. And, you know, I really want to uh, encourage your listeners to go to our website, wildones.org slash chapters slash Wisconsin, and to find a chapter near them. Uh, they could find uh, that chapter and get involved or figure out, see what sort of events are going on. And, um, you, know, uh, you know, all kinds of workshops that are coming up that some of these chapters put on. Uh, but, yeah, we, we've, we've done a tremendous amount of growth. And I think, you know, as we've seen a lot of land use change over the last, you know, 25, 50 or more years, you know, people are starting to get more and more interested in seeing how they can uh, help out with some of the loss of biodiversity uh, in their own backyards. Yeah. So, I mean, some of this biodiversity, you know, we, we're really starting to see the, the impacts, whether that be from impacting the numbers of monarch butterflies that, you know, are migrating each year to uh, – you know, and, and loss of bobwhite quail, which were much more common. I remember when my childhood, but you know, I, you know, I can't remember the last time I heard a, a bobwhite quail. And, um, and so, a lot of this is we're taking away their habitat as our society grows and develops. So, you know, native plants—they are the like the hub of the uh, the the web of life. You know, uh, they support so much through caterpillars, uh, bird populations, you know, a lot of bird species feed their, uh, their little, uh, hatchlings in their nests, uh, caterpillars. I mean, the, these caterpillars are like, you know, all the uh, uh, protein and nutrients, all this wrapped up into a tiny morsel. Uh, and it's, they have to spend a lot less calories searching for these caterpillars to feed to their young than they do. Uh, if they had to go out and, find a bunch of aphids, say, you know, that's uh, much more return on their investment. And so when we grow native plants that are going to attract caterpillars and butterflies, we're therefore supporting the bird populations vicariously. And, and so that's just, you know, a lot of people, you know, when you plant a native wildflower in your garden and you almost immediately see that return on investment, you're, you're you know, if you plant it, they will come, as we like to joke around in our chapter. Okay. Uh, A Madison listener emailed that the founder of the Wild Ones, uh, Lori Otto, who was also involved in helping to end the use of DDT in Wisconsin. Yeah, Lori Otto is, yes, uh, she, you know, as the founder, has been uh, very influential uh, in many other ways as well. Um, So, yeah, uh, trying to uh, find other ways to, you know, control any pests uh, that don't harm, say, our bird or pollinator populations has been, uh, you know, a long-lasting legacy of Lori's. Yeah, she was a contributor to this program on more than one occasion. Uh, so great to have her remembered for sure. So the benefits, mm-hmm. I mean, there's a, I can think of a lot of benefits. I mean, what are the prime ones to being a member in your mind? Uh Prime benefits of native plants. Is that what I'm sorry, about? of being a member of the wild ones. Oh, of being a member. Oh, sure. Yeah, uh, all kinds of uh, benefits. So, uh, you know, you can join a, a household membership level. <clears throat> yes, typically our, our entry level, or unless you're on limited income, then you know it could be uh, cheaper than that. 
Um, if you go to our website, you can see different options for membership. Uh, I'm a household member, so that includes all members of your household, so your family, including children under the age of 18. And so you get access to our current electronic issue of our quarterly Wild Ones Journal. That's a, a big one. There's all kinds of great informational articles, um, you know, news and reports about what we're doing uh, across our footprint, uh, invitations to workshops, garden tours, uh, depending on what your local chapter is doing. Uh, so you get those benefits from uh, your local chapter, but also uh, from the national organization as well. So some chapters, you know, host native plant cells or do uh, plant rescues and maybe areas where there may be some native species that, um, you know, in that place might be uh, going to be developed soon. Sometimes these chapters might work with the developer to come remove some of these native species before they start turning dirt. Um, other also uh, discounts at participating nurseries. There are some Wild Ones chapters that have uh, nurseries that they partner with that provide discounts. Um, we have a national photo contest, uh, citizen science programs, uh, as well as our, uh, you know, our electronic newsletter as well. Uh, we also have a private Facebook group for all of our members that people post questions and uh, stuff like that in there. So you get a lot of networking and camaraderie with a lot of like-minded people who care about native plants and our planet. And that's really, to me, the, the, the best thing about it is finding other people who share your interests. Yeah, absolutely. And you have, I don't know if you mentioned it, uh, the Wild for Monarchs program. Explain or tell us about that program. Yeah, so we've been, uh, yeah, partnering with the Wild for Monarchs program. Um, and I, I probably uh, should know a little bit more about it than I do. <laughs> so I apologize for not being able to speak too extensively about it, but it is one of our uh, recognition programs that you, know, you, do, you do gain participation in by being a member. So uh, I know there's a great collaborative event happening on March 19th. Uh, and tell us about this uh, event. Um, March 19th? Are we talking about the um, event there taking place uh, with our local uh, Fox Valley chapter? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, oh, yes. I know. What, uh, I, sorry, <laughs> catching up with you now. Yeah, we're talking about the, the program with Robin Wall Kimmerer. Yes. Yes. Uh, for some reason, I had it in my head that it was sooner than March nineteenth. Uh, but yes, it is on March nineteenth. Uh, Robin, if you're not familiar with her, she is a celebrated ecologist, educator, and author. Uh, who wrote the 2013 bestseller, Braiding Sweetgrass. Uh, it's gained a lot of popularity in recent years. Uh, and so she is, uh, we are uh, collaborating with University of Arkansas, or I'm sorry, University of Wisconsin's Oshkosh Sustainability Institute for Regional Transformations and the Intertribal Student Council to host her for a program titled Indigenous Wisdom, Scientific Knowledge, and the Teachings of Plants. So we're really excited to be able to have Dr. Kimmerer come speak to us. The talk explores the stories and experiences that has shaped her over the years. Attendees are also invited to consider what we might learn if we understood plants as our teachers from both a scientific and an indigenous perspective. So it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be a good one. I'm really excited. I'll be attending remotely from Arkansas. Really excited about that. 
Yeah, and Braiding Sweetgrass, the book, it was, I think you said, it was published in 2013, I believe. It certainly continues to inspire readers. Have you read the book? And and maybe talk about what the book itself is about. Yeah, so I have read the book, or at least I've listened to the audiobook version. Some people call that reading. (laughs) I say I listen to it on my drive into work. So it is a wonderful uh, book. I, I love it, especially as uh, somebody who is in love with the plant world. Uh, so it's a series of essays that explore uh, the reciprocal relationships between humans and the land, uh, with a focus on the role of plants and botany in both Native American and Western traditions. So it's uh, really uh, she really brings a unique perception to uh, that you know I think is missing in a lot of our modern scientific uh, literature. Uh, her writing has been said to reframe our relationship with life on this planet uh, and explain how Western perspectives that have dominated decades of quote-unquote development are missing out on really something fundamental. So it includes like stories of her personal experiences working with plants as a, as a botanist uh, and also with reuniting with her people's cultural traditions. Uh, Dr. Kimmer is a member of the citizen Potawatomi Nation. Uh, and so she uh, presents the history of plants and botany from both an uh, uh, indigenous perspective as well as a scientific one. And so that's something that uh, is, is it's really great. Once you're reading it, it's a very inspiring book to read. Yeah. Sort of reminds me in some ways of uh, Aldo Leopold's, you know, and uh, another guy who spent a lot of time here in Wisconsin, uh, his, yeah. his, his writings. Yeah, yeah, I agree. It was very similar. So, um, you know, and so bringing that deep ecology understanding uh, that uh, there are plants and other parts of nature have value outside of their use for humans is, I think, something that is really starting to to grow more in our society. And hopefully this talk is uh, part of that growing movement. So and people can attend at the UW Oshkosh. Uh, or, as you said, you're going to watch it online. I mean, what's the whole process here? How can folks uh, participate? What do they need to do? Yeah, so uh, you can go to our website uh, and, and register on there. We unfortunately just sold out of our in-person tickets. And so, uh, But if you haven't gotten your ticket yet, like I said, you can uh, view this remotely. So. Uh, if you are a University of uh, Wisconsin Oshkosh student, faculty, or staff, uh, you could register with your UWO uh, email, and the event is free. Uh, for everyone else, we have to pay. Um, and so, um, so tickets to attend, uh, like I said, have been sold out. But uh, if you go onto our website and register uh, to watch the program remotely. If you're a member of Wild Ones, it will cost you $14, but uh, $18 for the general public. So anyone can watch this, no matter where you are in the country. And like I said, you'll get a link uh, once you register to the live event, but you'll also um, get a recording that will be available afterwards as well. So if you can't attend or watch the live event remotely as it's occurring, uh, you can all, you can still register and watch it at your convenience while the the, the link is available. I think it's really a great opportunity. And if you can't see it in person, you can certainly watch it online. And uh, I, I think at a reasonable price as well. And so your yes. your uh, uh, online address is uh, wildones.org, right? 
Yeah, wildones.org. Yes, that's correct. Okay. Other events uh, coming up this spring. You have some other events coming. Yeah. So, yeah, if you go onto our website, like I mentioned, uh, that wildones.org slash chapter slash Wisconsin, there will be a list of events happening that our Wisconsin chapters are putting on. And so, you know, going up on there, I looked, it looked like a Saturday, February, February 24th, the Madison chapter is hosting a, a program called Plan Your Pollinator Garden. Uh, so that would be good, especially uh, this time of year when many of us are starting to get ready for gardening season, kind of planning what we want to add to our gardens this year and kind of maybe cleaning up some of our garden beds uh, to get ready for the year. Uh, they also have another program uh coming up also i believe later on on a rain garden so that would be one that would be uh, great uh, if you're interested in uh, improving water quality uh, helping uh, reduce flooding after stormwater runoff uh, after these you know heavier rain events that we're starting to see more and more happen uh, due to climate change eric what does your garden your uh, native garden look like yeah, well, so I live a little bit outside of town, so I'm kind of lucky that I'm not bound by any city ordinances, and I have what I would like to call a true wild garden. So uh, you wouldn't know if you drove past it that I put a lot of work into it. it, it uh, and I like to joke about that because, uh, you know, I, I let it go, and I work on removing the invasive species and planting native species and then once or twice a year, I take a, 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 a weed whacker and I cut trails through it. So uh, we live on uh, about an acre of property. Uh, and so I, I really enjoy the, just keeping it all as wild as possible. And um, We love the blooms and we let it go. We have a lot of diversity. We see uh, a lot of wildlife visit our small little acre. Oh, man. And I believe you were instrumental in creating the Wild Ones, uh, your Wild Ones chapter. Uh, the Ozark chapter, how how did that process work? Yeah, so, yeah, uh, that was in 2020, uh, coincidentally, right before the pandemic. So that kind of threw us for a little bit of a loop at first. (laughs) But uh, I live in a part of the country that is rapidly developing. You know, this is, you know, Walmart country. And uh, uh, I live, you know, actually in the Fayetteville, Bentonville area in the northwest corner of the state. And so, you know, we've seen a lot of population growth here. And so a lot of the landscape just in the past 20, 15, 10 years even is just changing and it's almost becoming unrecognizable. And so there was a definite need in this area for a focus on how can we at least preserve some of the uh, biodiversity that was once here. Um, You know, I mentioned that web of life, how native plants are part of the web of life. And to me, whenever we take what was once a native prairie and replace it with a parking lot, you know, you're never going to see what the biodiversity that was once there. But when we are able to use some native plants in the landscaping or gardening parts of maybe that parking lot, we're at least helping to reweave some of those threads of the web of life back into that area. Uh, at least it's better than, than nothing at all. And so uh, I happen to also live in an area that there's a lot of interest in gardening and landscaping with native plants. And there's a lot of support from it uh, for it by various uh, organizations, nonprofits, and some of the cities around here. And so this, uh, you know, the, we have a native plant society, you know, which focuses more on uh, serving native plants in their natural habitat. But we all we needed something that was a little more focused on the built environment and making sure that we're still keeping as many native plants in, in the cities as possible. And so that's why 
I learned about Wild Ones uh, from a friend and I decided to charter the Ozark chapter. And it, honestly, there was so much interest that it, it wasn't that difficult. And we just we grew really quickly. And uh, it, it's just been great. So, like I said, it was right before the pandemic happened. And so we had to switch to a virtual sort of format. But uh, we were able to offer webinars during 2020 and 2021 when everyone was stuck at home and uh, we started publishing our local chapter journal electronically and, you know, it kind of gave people something to do uh, while they were at home, um, you know, trying to uh, flatten the curve at the time that we were all trying to do. And so uh, once we we're able to kind of come back out and rejoin the world, we started having in-person events again. And uh, it's just been great. It's been met a lot of great people uh, through through our local chapter and we've been involved in some local projects and uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's been a good time. So. Well, it's, uh, yeah. And if there was, there weren't, there wasn't much good we can talk about when it comes to that COVID period. But one thing that was kind of good in a way was that we learned how to use Google Meet and Zoom and things of that nature. And that allows us, for example, to be able to um, hear Robin Wall Kimmerer speak uh at the um at the event coming up on march 19th um so exactly (laughs) there was anything good that came out of it it was we we all got a whole lot better with uh, using our computers eric it's been fun talking with you thank you so much for taking time to talk about the wild ones and i hope we i hope you get a lot of of more members as a result thanks so much thank you for having me it's been great Eric Fuseler, member of the Wild Ones Board of Directors and member of the Ozark chapter of the Wild Ones. Great to have him with us. It's fun to learn a little about more about the Wild Ones. Monday, it's time for the weather guys. They'll be talking about tornadoes in southern Wisconsin, folklore and forecasting, and how drones help meteorologists. Thanks for listening. Stay with us. Have a good weekend. I'm Larry Mueller.